Genesis 47, verses 13 to 31. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of God. Christians are meant to be actively and enthusiastically engaged in the world. Jesus tells his disciples that you are like salt. And salt, at least in his context, had at least two functions, one as a preservative and one for flavor. You know, before refrigeration, if you had meat um, and you didn't want it to go to waste, to decay, you'd salt it and that would preserve it. Um, But salt, it's not simply that it has a good flavor, but when you salt food, it, it brings out the good flavor of the food. And so when Jesus calls his disciples to live differently in the world, Um, Part of the reason that he says that he leaves us here to remain in the world is for a preservative function. God has made the world good, but there are corrupting influences that cause decay. And and there's meant to be people who are sustained by God and his ways, and that's meant to to create more stability for good in the world. But there's also, uh, in this mixed world of good and evil, 
um, we want to bring out the flavor of goodness and, and sending people into the world who are like salt is meant to, to make this world to some degree um, more as it should be, pointing to God and the way we experience it. And, and the, the, the metaphor of salt, on the one hand, it reminds us we're not meant to stay in silos or in shakers or in containers. Um, on the other hand, Jesus does warn his disciples not to lose saltiness, not to lose distinction. Uh, if you put a teaspoon in the ocean, the ocean is not more preserved or, or more flavorful. It's just the salt is gone. And, and so if we create a spectrum with two extremes, with the poles, there, there's a form of Christianity that's very protection-oriented, withdrawing, um, and, and to the degree that it wants to be effective is often not because it's, it's removed, it's, it's kept together. And on the other extreme would be uh, a, sort of an accommodation, assimilationist kind of Christianity that's so enmeshed in the world that it's hard to, to see how there's any distinction. And so to the degree that it's easy to avoid the extremes, most Christians live somewhere on that spectrum and actually, where you are often is a cause of disagreement with others along the spectrum. We have theological reasons for having a certain orientation towards how we engage the world and what our expectations are, how much you protect, how much you risk and engage. Um, and there are theological reasons for that, but there are also personal reasons. Some of us are a little bit more timid, a bit more nervous, and we, we like safety, and so we try to protect a certain kind of Christianity. Some of us are... Um, uh, sort of outgoing type A personalities and you want to get in there and, and, and getting things done is part of how you uh, live and, and, uh, and our Christianity takes shape along those lines. So today, without going into the details of exactly where you're supposed to be or what our view of engaging the culture is, I want to say more generally that one of the ways that we could avoid the traps of either becoming so weird and ineffective and what's meant to be protective but, you, but not being protective from the world just being protected from a certain aspect of the world and then just becoming ineffective and not necessarily godly, or becoming so enmeshed and so excited about the world that you lose any distinction, that your, your hope, your character, none of these things are being shaped by God. And you're not really having any influence, you've just been influenced. Uh, to avoid those extremes, one thing that's helpful is to clarify who you're serving. Now that for some is a weird question, who are you serving? Maybe it's obvious if you have a strong boss and all you're thinking about is you know, the agenda. Um, but some of us, I think, today would say, well, I don't, I don't serve anyone, I'm free. And of course, uh, if that answer comes quickly without careful thought, odds are um, you just don't know who you're serving. Are you subject to your own whims and desires? That's probably not good and it's clearly not freedom. Or maybe you're so influenced by social forces around you or role models or people that have been in your life that you're not even aware that you're following others' ideals and others' visions. And so to say that I serve myself usually is, is, a, is a little naive. And on the other hand, some people really know, oh, here's, you know, here's a certain social circle or a certain field, or here's, here's a figure that is so wonderful, I, I, I desire, desire to be like that person. You know, it's interesting, when, when we do that, we, in common language, we say, we idolize that person, which is fine as a general concept, but in biblical language, to make an idol of anything immediately raises a red flag. You could admire somebody, you could learn from them, you can want to know them, but if you idolize them, then maybe you're serving them. Maybe there's no true you, but, but your agenda is set by them. Jesus says there's an irony that in choosing to serve me, you actually find freedom. If you think you're serving no one, or if you're not aware of who you're serving, or if you know that you're serving your corporation, or some social agenda, or some influential individual, Jesus comes in and says, God has sent me into the world to call you to him. And there's enough around what God's, the Father's testimony to Jesus about all authority on heaven and earth being given to him. That Jesus really is the picture of the one that we're told, uh, he, can, he can lead us, you can trust him. And if you devote yourself to serving him and listening to him and living in his ways, then you actually experience freedom. Then you actually start to be shaped in a way that inadvertently protects you from the problems of this world 
And also, simply by being faithful and following, you wind up having an effect and influence. I'm not trying to oversimplify things to say that we don't need to be intentional about things and do deep theological work and practical work and self-evaluation. But, but a, a starting point is identifying who am I serving. And what Jesus says, if you're serving me, I will lead you someplace. You will grow, you will change, and you will experience freedom. And so uh, I'm, I'm beginning talking about this because we'll, we'll, we're moving towards the end of the Joseph story. And we see Joseph who rises the ranks in Egypt with his wisdom, with his skill. And he's the second most powerful person in this increasingly powerful uh, nation. And he's serving the nation well. He serves Pharaoh well. At the end of this chapter, uh, come December or February or the Egyptian economic cycle, Joseph's going to get a good bonus. He has been faithful to Pharaoh. But when we read the broader story, it's always God who's with Joseph, God who is preserving him and protecting him and helping him. And it's not that God isn't with him here, but God's not mentioned. And it's not that Joseph is, is, um, has abandoned the faith, but there's something about the Egyptian identity that he's taken on that creates a contrast in this passage with Jacob, his father, who's now in Egypt, but still hints of holding to this promise. So today what I want to talk about, uh, using the imagery of kingdom, because we're, we're, we're looking at a story with the kingdom of Egypt, but we're also looking at it as a gathering of a Christian church that here's the teachings of Jesus who announces an alternate kind of kingdom. So we may not use the language of kingdom in, in many of our political situations, but there's a sense in which understanding Jesus as the ruler, as the authority, building an alternate community uh, is really important. And so what I want to talk about today is the contrast between building a kingdom and receiving a kingdom. And it's a subtle contrast, but what I'm talking about with building a kingdom, which is where I'm beginning, is the human propensity to take all of the things that God has given us, our wisdom, our skill, our desire for work and productivity, and this world that God has made and ordered, but to, to pursue those things apart from God, where then the idea is, it's us, it's this world, and we will build these kingdoms. Now again, um, we, we tend to like black and white. Is it good or is it evil? And we're, we live in a mixed world with good and evil. <laughs> is it good that people have skill and wisdom and work hard? Yes. But could it be problematic? Yes. Is it good that people are not idolatrous and don't follow all the, uh, uh, you know, the pressures of New York City? Yes. Is it good if people stay home and don't do anything? No. And so staying engaged in this world always involves navigating uh, this tension. But we see in the book of Genesis that one of the threads, as we're now coming to the end of Genesis, if you go to the beginning of Genesis, one of the, the human problems, as soon as humans take on this knowledge, not simply of good, but of good and evil, that's Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve, there's something that goes wrong where then, then the, the coherence that comes through life with God, God in all things, God who gives all things, where then our hard work, our wisdom, our ingenuity, causes flourishing. There's something about going from the presence of God that's part of the biblical story. So Adam and Eve have two kids, Cain and Abel, and Cain has a performance review, and he's not meeting the standard. He needs to, he needs to be better. He has another chance. But what does he do? How do you get better? You kill the competition. That's, what Cain, that's Cain's improvement plan. God warns him there's possibility of change, and so how does he become the best? He kills Abel. And you follow the line of Cain, the genealogy, and the interesting thing is you follow the genealogy, and they're, they're creating civilization, technology, the arts. All of that's there in Cain's line, and that's good, we think, but there's something wrong in Cain's line. You get to Lamech, who then wants to show that he's better than his ancestors, and how does he prove that? I have more vengeance and power and authority than even Cain had. I am more threatening. I am more powerful. I, will, I, I kill more people. <laughs> what is it about human ambition that, that leads to that as a possible outcome? And you follow the story down, and you read about Ham, and you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, but a high point in Genesis on this thread is Babel. Does God have a problem with our coming together and building things? No, God commands that in Genesis 2. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Work is part of what we do. But there's a city of man. There's a gathering 
that's not commissioned by God, that is not his blueprint to say, but, but in our pride, we, we want to excel. We, we want to walk away from God, and frankly, we don't need him at this point. And we find to a certain degree that's true. You don't need God or faith in God to advance with intelligence and ability and to gain skills and to do productive things. Uh, but the seeds of devastation and destruction are in there. God sees what's happening in Babel. And as a reader, it's a little confusing. What's wrong with what happened? God who knows where this is going says we need to stop it now. And you see the hints of that as, as Genesis unfolds and God calls Abraham to an alternate community, somebody to walk with God, to receive God's blessing, but to go into the world to bless, to work, to be productive, to give. And we come to this story and we find God has been at work in Joseph's life despite the fact that Jacob's other sons have mistreated him, selling him into slavery out of resentment. So the, the story continues about human corruption. But God is with Joseph, and Joseph flourishes and prospers. And in this story, where it's not clear that God is with him or guiding him, we could assume that God has appointed him to this task because he serves the needs of Egypt quite well, and he serves the needs of his own family quite well. His brothers meant evil by selling them into slavery, but, but now God has placed him there to save his own family. What a strange way of doing things. That's the opposite of killing our competition. This is God's plan that the undeserving wind up uh, receiving. God has an alternate way of doing things. Um, but when you read this story, it's a little hard to tell to what degree is Joseph being exceedingly wise and faithful and moral, or is there any evidences that he's taken on the ways of Egypt or the responsibility to serve Pharaoh faithfully? in a way that makes it a little bit fuzzy whether or not he's still serving God faithfully. And so what happens? There's a dream that Pharaoh has. We read about that in the past where, where Joseph understands it to mean there will be seven years of prosperity but seven years of famine. We're now in the famine, moving years in. And I find myself wondering, um, did, did Pharaoh let the rest of Egypt know Hey, by the way, there's going to be seven hard years, so save up and store up. Because a couple years in, people didn't have resources. Did they, did they not know? I think if he told them, a lot of people would be like, well, how do we know there's going to be a famine? Pharaoh had a dream. He had a dream. Yeah, and this Hebrew guy, former slave, uh, says that, that the creator told him that there's going to be a famine. I could see a lot of Egypt thinking, I don't know, let's enjoy today. Let's not worry about tomorrow. Um, I think it's possible that they knew and they prepared but didn't have the resources to save up for seven years. Maybe uh, people had to store the, the amount of uh, land, the, the ability to store up for two years, but this is a seven-year famine. However we got here, society as a whole is now starving. But through Joseph's wisdom and his planning, there's an abundance that he has that he's sharing and blessing his family is living with more prosperity now, it would seem, than ever. Pharaoh is prospering, and Joseph is able to sustain starving people. That is all fantastic. And so they come, as you do, with their money, with their silver. We're starving, you have grain, we're going to buy. What a wonderful exchange. Until they run out of money. And now we have livestock, and, and that's our future asset. This is our 401k. And I don't know if it's a tax advantage to trade it for grain or to wait until after Joseph uh, institutes 20%, but maybe we'll, we'll uh, send the cattle in now in exchange for the grain, even though that's our future plan, because we're eating today, and when, when the famine is done, maybe we could refarm, except now the famine's not done, and we no longer have silver, and we no longer have livestock. So what do we do? We have nothing. And Joseph says, I will feed you. And so let me read to you from verses 23 uh, to 26, just I think a summary, not new information here, but putting it together. Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives 
May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt as it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So you see the kindness, the wisdom, the generosity. Joseph is making sure people are being fed. But it does raise the question, when people are completely out of anything and they see the only thing we have left is our land, our heritage, and our very selves, our bodies, and we have nothing else, to think that an appropriate exchange there to feed you so you become our permanent servants. Now, this is different. I mean, this is an important thing for, for our country, Juneteenth weekend, to think about our own legacy of slavery. Um, a form of slavery so bad that it's hard not to read this portion and think that it must have been the same where, where it probably wasn't as bad. It seems like they still worked the land. Uh, so they, they didn't become Pharaoh's literal property in that they were as dispensable, but there seemed to have been some problematic economic arrangement. And we know it's problematic because when God calls his people into a kingdom, years later with Moses, there are specific commands. If somebody struggles and they lose their assets and they become poor, they could sell their land and they could become a servant, but there's a period of time when the land goes back to that family. There are limits on what it means that that person is your servant. So, uh, so even if that, even if the law of Moses is somewhat an accommodation to the world that Moses inhabited, it's still a strong counter to what we see over and over again, where in God's kingdom, where God is king and God is ruler, when people are hungry, yes, you feed them, but you don't take everything that's left. There's still an identity, an honor, a dignity. Joseph, I don't know where the ethical line is, and ethics are often not like that. Should he have taken the silver but not the cattle? Is it fine that he took the property and taxed them uh, to a certain degree? It's hard to tell where the line is, but certainly if, as Christians, if we have to ask the question of Jesus, was the ruler in this, and people came hungry, would, would Jesus wind up with all of the land? Would he take... Uh, their very souls and bodies uh, in that sense. Um, and, th and that's where it's hard to imagine that this is playing out um, in a way that's leading to good. In the short term, Joseph does good. His people are fed. He served Pharaoh well. But one of the reasons we know that this decision was not fully upright, even if it was a desperate decision, even if it was a compromised decision, was because we're nearing the end of Genesis, only two chapters left, and then you quickly move ahead a couple hundred years. And the promises to Abraham are being fulfilled in a family. You know, a person without kids was told you'll have, be, have a family, but the family will become a nation. Right now, there's 70 people. They're a really big family, but they're not a nation. Over the generations, God is faithful to his promise. They are fruitful and multiply as they were commanded, and they start to become more like a nation. And they become like a nation in the land of Egypt where Jacob, where Joseph, I should say, devoted a season of his years to solidifying all the power in the leader of Egypt. And so maybe it was appropriate for this time being. But as soon as his brothers and their descendants got a little bit big that it became threatening, that Pharaoh enslaved them in a very cruel form, where they were given arbitrary quotas that they couldn't keep up to. And the idea was if we can kill the men, we could still control the community. And we see that play out in history. Did Joseph intend for that? Was it his fault? No, but, but inadvertently, what we, it's easy to look back and say, you know what, he probably should have just been generous for that period and made some other agreement. I don't know what, what we should have done. But there's enough in the Bible and enough in history to say as soon as you're taking people's lands and their very identity and you own them, this is now how the kingdoms of the world function and it's not ever how the kingdom of God is meant to function. And so there's this inadvertent warning here to us as we go into the world to say, look, if you work for Pharaoh who doesn't have God's agenda, 
a lot of what he will have you do will be good and you work hard and you advance the kingdom of Egypt. That's your position. But everyone, no matter what school you're at or what form of employment you have or what institution you work for or what family you're in, we're always going to face these kinds of situations where the lines are a bit fuzzy and, and, and blurry, but there's a sense in which the, the agenda that's moving forward, that's creating an ethics that says the next right thing to do is this, where there's an instinct, especially for those who are called to have the mind of Christ and to live by the Spirit, there's always going to be some area where you say, I don't know where the line is, but, but clearly this is going into a place that is not good. This is not how God leads. This is not how God wants me to follow. And doing that may bring short-term gain, and sometimes the world is messy enough you have to do things you're uncomfortable with. But you have to think about the future. And what decisions are we making now that are helping with our current prosperity but are creating in 100 years <laughs> the next Tower of Babel? And it's hard to see, and there's no easy answer and so there's no one or two principles to say, as Christians, we have this. And so what needs to be clarified is, well, who are you following? <laughs> because there's meant to be an overlap, an alignment between following Christ, who tells us, honor your mother and father, serve your boss, your master. There's meant to be an alignment that service to Christ and service in this world go together. But there are times that we find that the ways of this world start to differ sufficiently that then there's confusion. What's the right thing to do? Or this cost, if I do the right thing, is my obligation to my family that if I go against uh, my company's policy, I'll be unemployed? And so is the faithful thing to make sure I'm employed and feeding my family? Um, it's not clear this ethical issue in my institution. Do I just go with it or do I take a stand? Those are really hard places. Each of us are wired differently. We'll handle them differently. But what's important, one of the key dynamics in the book of Genesis that you see throughout is the problem of pride. Ambition, good. Selfish ambition, bad. Skill and ability, good. Skill and ability towards evil ends, bad. And so there's a sense in which Joseph here is admirable, wise. But whether he did wrong or not, if we were to ask God, if God says he did right, his actions still led to the future oppression of his own people. My assessment is, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he meant well, but I think his behavior was problematic. This is not what I think Jesus would do if Jesus was in that position. And for ourselves, without the easy answers, we need humility and we need patience and we need to pray in situations where you're asked to do something and you don't know what to do, you pray for wisdom and clarity and you seek counsel. You pray for courage to do the right thing, but so often in the world you don't know what the right thing is and there's no right answer. And so part of the prayer of the Christian is, Lord, I'm going to make this choice and protect me and protect those around me and help me. And that's what we see in the Joseph story, that, that Joseph's brothers did not mean good, and yet somehow God was able to work within that mess to bring good out of it. But it's possible, even if Joseph meant good, that the natural conclusions would be the evil that comes from it. And yet even there, God shows up and delivers them. We could say, did they deserve to be enslaved, the Hebrew people? I would say no, but even if you wanted to make that argument, God saw their oppression. He heard their cries, and once again, he showed up to make right what went wrong. There is no perfect getting the world perfect, but we are to strive to do everything good and to resist everything evil. But we're confused human beings. We work in mixed institutions. And so part of it is with humility, with prayer, looking to the ultimate one we're serving Christ, to say, my ultimate job is not to build this kingdom. I have a responsibility through my contract to cause this company, this institution, this family, wherever you spend your time, to flourish. But there are times where you have to recognize, if I have to choose between Jesus Christ as the king or somebody else with power and authority, if that choice is clear, then there's no question what choice you make. The problem is the choice is often not clear. And so kingdom building as a human endeavor, we need to be careful. Not that we need to be lazy, not that we need to be afraid, not that we need to do nothing, not that we need to be so committed to not making mistakes that we don't do anything positive. 
We're meant to be actively engaged. And one of the ways that we, we step into more of that reality is to shift from the mindset of building a kingdom. Who am I? What do I have? What are my opportunities? And how do I do it? To a mindset where you receive a kingdom. God is actually building something much bigger and something better that I can be a part of. And so in my context, I could work for a certain place that has a certain goal and I could help them to grow and to advance their mission and all of these things. But, but there's a mindset that says, I'm not building this person's kingdom, but I'm receiving from the one that I'm faithful to, the one that I serve, the one who uniquely has been given power and authority from the Father. And the ideal is that there would be a coherence, that in serving Christ in his ways and his honor, you are faithfully serving in this world. But it's important to get that clarity that there is one who has that kind of power and authority. And you read the book of Revelation, you know, John gets a vision in to the heavenly realms where Christ is seated and there's power and there's honor and there's glory. But there are these scrolls that seem to be, you know, here's the future that no human being knows that God is going to reveal to make known the kinds of things that will happen. And there's this question, who's worthy? to open the scroll. Is there anyone who is? And it's just interesting moment. If you're reading the Bible quickly, you could go by it. But, but if you stop and you take in the power and the majesty and the awe, and then the awfulness of what's about to be revealed, in the question, who's worthy, when the answer is none, it just seems like a bare fact. But John, who sees this, it says he weeps. There's something overwhelmingly terrible, the fact that there's no person, there's no help, there's no salvation. And then we're told that there is one who is worthy, Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And it's that clarity to say, we don't have to give in to cynicism, to say that there's no good, everything's a waste, you can't, you know, hope in anything. But there's something about wisdom of saying, we always have to be careful, every human being, myself, yourselves, whoever we work with and for, none of us should have ultimate power and authority. Does that mean there should be no power and authority? Power is good when it's stewarded well. The Bible says when power and authority is given to Jesus Christ and when his ways are received and followed, then an alternate kingdom starts to be built. And we have a participation in it, we're active in it, we apply our skill, our wisdom, our strength, our energy, our courage, but the outcome, the more we're doing, the more we're leading to life and flourishing and blessing and peace. And within that, our human endeavors, our gaining skills and talents, are getting educated, are having a career, are parenting, are enjoying recreation, all of these things within citizenship within the kingdom of God, where there's a coherence, we'll all make mistakes, we should try to avoid them, we'll deal with the consequences, we pray that God would redeem them. But the trajectory is different. And you see the hint of that in Jacob. So, so Jacob has now He's come as an old man, and, and you know, the hints in the narratives up until this point is he's frail enough that nobody knows if Jacob's going to live. <laughs> so he finds out that his son Joseph, who he, his beloved son who he thought was dead, is still alive and is now a high authority in Egypt. And he makes the choice to make the trip, a complicated choice, one, because he's been promised a place in a land as an heir of Abraham and Isaac. Does he leave the land and go die elsewhere? There's also the risk, what if he dies along the way and then he's not in the land and he doesn't see his son? He so loves his son. He's so excited by the surprising news that his beloved son is still alive that he goes. And now we have this interaction. And we, we get the indication from verse 28, I think it is, that 17 years pass. So Jacob is surprised to find that in his frailty, God has years of blessing for him. You know, in a previous week, he stands before Pharaoh and he says, my years have been few and evil. Jacob has lived a hard life, a lot of it his own fault. You know, there are echoes of the story of Jacob and Esau. What do you do when your brother's starving? You feed him and you take his birthright. Jacob had to flee. His whole life thinking if his brother Esau found him, he would die. Now here's Joseph who's a different person, a much better person it seems than Jacob. But there's echoes of a pattern. When people are starving, you feed them, but you take what belongs to them. And so here's Jacob who, who comes to Egypt and finds that he's going to have 17 years of life, of prosperity in the midst of famine, that God will restore this family. And there's all these wonderful things happening. But we find that Jacob did not want to come to Egypt. He sent his sons, but he had no intention of coming. He came 
not for food. He came not for prosperity. He came not because he thought Pharaoh was a greater king. He came because the son that he loved was there. And now he sees him and he says, but my goal is to go back. Verses 29 to 31. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. You know, this weird interaction, the, the heart of it is clear. Joseph, I want to be buried with Abraham and Isaac. I want to be back in the land of promise. I want our descendants to continue to hold to that unrealized reality in the midst of this prosperous place. This is not our family. This is not our place. And there's this weird interaction, uh, but the ancient cost, custom of put your hand under my thigh, they make a covenant. I wouldn't try that this week if your boss promises a bonus and you say, well, put your hand under my thigh and promise the bonus. Uh, in that culture, this was a way, when Joseph said, I will do it, Jacob says, swear to me. This is not, some, this is not sort of like, oh, here's my ideal death wish. What, you know, what, what would the, the last food that you want to eat be? This is Jacob saying, my whole life that's been hard and messy and I nearly completely messed up, but I wrestled with God and God has not taken the promise of Abraham and removed it from me. But, but it's being realized, we're growing. <laughs> and I don't know why we're all here now and not in the land, but, but send me back there. Because at the end of the day, I live by that promise and that hope. It's more satisfying than the prosperity of Egypt. And the book of Hebrews encourages New Testament Christians to live by faith. In Hebrews 11, when it talks about the faith, the example is always the person who served God, was with God, but hoped in something that was not yet realized. They didn't have it yet. So they didn't sit around and do nothing and wait. Each, some people have very good lives, very hard lives, very complicated lives, but you read through Hebrews 11, and there's a sense in which God is going to do something better. There's a city whose builder and architect is God, and it has greater endurance and glory than anything we can build. And so we want to be part of that project. It's, it's over long stretches of time, and so in our generation, we'll make a little dent in that work, but we become part of that story. And, and what Hebrews says is have that kind of faith, trust in that kind of promise because it's made for you. Because yes, you can live a wonderful full life here and now. There's wonderful, important things for you to do. There's an overlap with your life here and the kingdom God is building. And faithfulness in that kingdom evidences itself through faithful living here. But the problem is sometimes the worlds don't overlap. <laughs> and sometimes this world crumbles or it prospers, but you're excluded from it. And it's by faith that you hold on to a promise that the way the world disappoints is not what God would do. And so this idea of Jesus sending us into the world is following the pattern that Jesus was sent by the Father. Jesus didn't stay in the heavenly glory with, uh, uh, with power, glory, and honor. But we're told that he came into this corrupted world and he didn't bear the signs of an earthly kingdom because he's not building that kind of kingdom. So he didn't come with an entourage and he didn't come with wealth and riches and he didn't come with, with a plan that immediately gave him success. What we're told is he gave all of that up to come for the beloved children of the Father. He didn't come to the earth because the earth was greater than the heavenly realms. He came to the earth because people here are starving, because people here are grappling with immorality. People here are suffering and hating life. And he gave all of that up so that he too would be buried. But by God's design, he's taken down from a cross and he's put in a tomb, but it's a borrowed tomb. It's the tomb of a wealthy person to, to give a hint that as he's been disgraced, there is a sign of honor, but that tomb is not his resting place. It's almost as if in Hebrews, moving into 12, when we're told about following Jesus who endured the cross, scorning its shame because of the joy before him. It's as if he said, Father, if I go, Swear to me that you won't bury me here. And he suffered death, and he had a burial like we have, but, but the Father is faithful. He takes him out, and what we're told is he takes us with us. There's a promise that 
that we are to live on this earth for the good of the earth, but, but this is not our eternal resting place. Our hope is not that we will have a legacy here that endures forever. The hope is that Jesus is building an enduring kingdom that can't be shaken. And he gives it to us because that's the nature of Jesus. And so uh, the words of Isaiah, so much of Isaiah becomes realized in Jesus' ministry. Isaiah 55. I thought about reading this and not telling you where it's from. If I heard it and didn't know the reference, I would guess Gospel of Luke. This just sounds like the ministry of Jesus. Maybe I would guess Gospel of John based on one piece, but Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, we're called to a kingdom where he says, are you hungry? Are you poor in spirit? Do you want righteousness? Well, then blessed are you. He comes not to take the little we have left. But he comes to people who have next to nothing and don't know it. And he says, I will, I will give you what you can't buy. You can't purchase this. I will purchase it for you, and then I will feed you. I will satisfy your thirst. I alone have been pointed to be this kind of ruler. You can trust me. And so if you have nothing, still come. Because you had everything the world can offer you. It wouldn't buy you a, a spot in the kingdom. The kingdom is received. And that's actually good news. It creates an alternate reality that says we can live differently in this world because there's meant to be an overlap that when you honor your father and mother as the commandments tell you, they're blessed, God is blessed, you're blessed. When you serve your boss, if you have a boss, as God instructs you, God is blessed, you're blessed, your boss, the institution is blessed. But there are parents who are not upright. There are individuals and companies that are not upright. And so sometimes there's a separation out. And so what do you do? The human instinct is to repay. <laughs> if this is how my parents treat me, that's how I'll treat them. Or without knowing it, that's how I'll treat my kids. If this is how my boss treats me, that's how I'll treat them. Or without knowing it, that's how I'll treat the people that I live with. We so easily get pulled in. What we're told is clarify who you're serving. And if you're always serving Christ, sometimes it will line up that there's flow, there's magic, there's flourishing. And there's times that it breaks down. And you don't know, maybe it's you, maybe it's the situation, maybe it's the circumstances, maybe it's the people. But there are times we live in that tension and what we're told is, in those times, continue to take hold of the kingdom that's given to you. <laughs> Receive it, live according to that way, so that way your conduct is an alternate kind of conduct in this world. Uh, I had a job for a number of years prior to being a pastor where there was a lot of turnover in my particular department. And what I discerned is there was a pattern that about a year or two in I saw is that there was sort of a passive aggressive approach that if somebody was underperforming or simply wasn't liked, certain things about their job were just made difficult enough <laughs> that they wanted to leave. And something happened at some point, a couple of changes where all of a sudden my job became difficult. And it was confusing because there were clear explanations that were just outside of anybody's control, but I couldn't help but think, actually, is this, is this the passive-aggressive signal? Am I being told you should move on? To this day, I don't know. To this day, it's not clear to me because I, I saw this pattern and all of a sudden, the way things were happening, I thought, am I being encouraged to depart? But as I looked at, at what my own goals were in terms of the choices I was going to make and in what I thought that I hoped to accomplish before I left, I decided to stay an extended, beyond just a couple of weeks of sticking it out. I stayed for an extended period. And at that point, I was fairly young as a Christian, but understood enough to know if there's a tension between who I'm serving, as long as I'm still serving Christ, if he's pleased, if he's honored with the unseen things that I'm doing, if I act with integrity, even if even if it doesn't do anything for me, even if I leave here and never get a good reference, even if it's not recognized or rewarded, it will be good, it will be right. And so I experimented, I tried doing the best that I was able. Now, in my reflections, I look back and I wonder how much, how incompetent was I, how much was I doing that I didn't know, I don't know. Uh, and I still, to this day, don't know if it was intentional or circumstantial. circumstantial. But, but the two things I want to report is, one, my attitude was, I can keep going because 
they don't really have, they have the power to fire me. They have the power to correct me. But they don't really have power over my life. I, I, I report to Jesus Christ. That was freeing. It enabled me to keep doing the good things that I needed to do, even if the people telling me to do them, I wasn't so sure that they had good intentions. But the interesting thing is, oddly enough, in this division, whenever somebody left, it was always like a lunch for them. And it was usually very simple. My, by memory, in the few years that I was there, my lunch was this, I, I received gifts. <laughs> and, it's not, and it wasn't that uh, I was the greatest employee ever or the most loved, but there was a sense that I took that as a sign from God of, of God's encouragement that I had made some right choices. But I, I also thought that I functioned a little bit as salt in that context, that somehow, without responding with bitterness, with spite, by, by doing a good job when it became clear that I didn't have to, but I still, whether or not I did it, I tried to do it, there was this recognition at the end, there was this, um, there was a sense that, that I felt that that departure lunch was different <laughs> from other departure lunches. I'm not claiming the most successful story, but what I am saying is when you serve Christ, there's a freedom. And sometimes you're rewarded and sometimes you're not, but, but the world is better the more people that see Christ as their master. And so as we come to the end of this story, you know, this interesting detail, uh, so, so we're going to, next Sunday is my last Sunday here, then I go to the Presbyterian General Assembly in St. Louis, I take vacation, so we'll finish the Joseph series in August. We're nearing the end of Genesis, the end of the book of Genesis. I wonder how many of you know how Genesis ends. What, what is the actual ending? Well, it's Joseph with his brothers. Jacob is dead, and the, and the brothers think he was being nice to us to honor his father, but now we're in trouble. And Joseph makes clear, no. It's not because of my father. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's because I've seen that God meant good in all of this. And so the reconciliation of the family is a genuine reconciliation. And so the end of Genesis is his reconciling with his brothers, but then what's, what's his instruction? What's his wish for his brothers? 17 years after this incident, at least 17 years, I should say, he tells his brothers, make sure my bones don't stay in Egypt. Carry me out of this place. I mean, that's interesting because when you think of the second most important person in Egyptian culture who would get embalmed, mummified, given a place of honor, he would have an enduring presence and somehow, years after this moment, I don't know what happened, what transpired between his taking everyone's land and imposing this large tax, and his swearing to his father that he would make sure his father goes back. He makes his brothers say, take my bones. And then you go to the book of Exodus. <laughs> Generations later, and God once again delivers his people, and they remember the promise. They take the bones of Joseph, and they bring them back. And maybe that sounds like this weird, quirky detail, but if you think about the story, Joseph's brothers hated him, and they sold him to Egypt. Joseph didn't want to go to Egypt. He wanted to stay in the land of promise. He was sold, and he goes to Egypt. And God uses that to bring the whole family to Egypt in order to bless them. But as far as I know, by the biblical record, there are legends that say otherwise, but Judah and Reuben and Levi and Benjamin, all the other brothers, died and were buried in Egypt. I suppose whatever is of their remains is still there to this day. But Joseph, the one that was sold out of the land, the one who was betrayed, the one who was rejected, the one who was alienated, um, at the end of the day, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, their remains are in the land of promise. And the remains of Judah and Levi and Reuben are not, but their descendants are. God took their people. <laughs> and he restored them. And it's the sense that, that there's always this bigger thing that only God can do. And when God is faithful to a promise, it plays out in these weird ways, but it's always more wonderful and glorious. And so what we're told is, yeah, the odds for most of us is we will die a death on this earth and be buried or cremated or whatever it is. But there's a Christian plea that says, but Lord, don't, don't leave my bones in this earth. But remember me when Jesus presents the fullness of his kingdom. And what we're told is, as sure as he brought Jesus out of the tomb and ascended him into the heavenly realms, we're told that if we hold to the promise of a future kingdom and are not quite as tied to a present kingdom, then whether or not we have a huge memorial stone and a building named after us, or whether we're cremated and scattered in the wind, we're told that there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we receive it. We don't earn it, but God gives it to us 
and therefore we're told we will not be forgotten. At the inauguration of the kingdom, the faithfulness to the promise to bring us out and to welcome us in is there. And so that's not meant to be an escape from a hard life. It's meant to say the hardness of this life doesn't need to overwhelm me because I'm a citizen of something enduring. And so I can go into the world as salt and I may get a little bit damaged. I may have a little bit broken. I may lose some of my saltiness, but I will walk with God and I will receive what God will give me and I will devote myself to building that kind of kingdom. And it could be in honoring my parents or in studying or being a faithful employee um, or it could be through enduring difficult periods. But what we're told is God always shows his faithfulness. There's one king who is good and just and will fulfill what he promises. That's Jesus Christ. So do you serve him? We're told if that's who you're serving, you'll be okay. But we're warned if that's not who you're serving, uh, it sort of doesn't matter as much in the grand scheme of things. All of us want our lives to matter and all of us are invited. Come, eat and drink with what you cannot buy. It's offered to you freely. And so if you eat and drink, uh, you have an inheritance that you don't earn, that you can't destroy by your bad decisions, but that's given to you and will be fulfilled based on the promise of God and the faithfulness of Christ. That can't be shaken, so take hold of it. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we gather this morning, we need help and encouragement. We need true strength. Perhaps some of us need a humbling. Perhaps some of us need to let go of our greed, our idolatry. Some of us need to turn from the things that we're doing wrong today. Lord, we, we don't come here because we're perfect. We come here because we want that goodness. We want to take hold of the ways of Christ and to be shaped by them. So help us all in our weakness, in our folly, in our unbelief. Do a work of grace in our midst today and send us into this world this week with strength, with humility, with wisdom and skill, and with protection. Uh, and help us to receive this kingdom and live as citizens of that kingdom, even in the midst of wherever we go. Uh, bless us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.